Amen, and thank you, Pastor Steve and worship team. It's been a joy and delight to worship with you, to sing with you this morning, for sure. When Christ began to reveal himself, when the 12 disciples, for example, were just forming, would you agree with me that they were looking for something very specific? Meaning it just couldn't be any old individual who was claiming to be the Messiah that that people were looking and longing for. For example, in the Gospel of John, this encounter is recorded this way in in chapter 1, verse 45. We'll get there, I promise. I'll click it enough that it'll pop up eventually. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and of the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. There was someone with very specific credentials that they were looking for. Now, no doubt, there had been individuals who had come after Moses had written this in the silent days before Christ who claimed to be the Messiah, who might have looked like the Messiah, but most certainly was not. See, at the end, when Moses was dying, when he was passing along, which being referenced here, uh, Moses said that there would arise, and we'll see it here in a moment, another prophet. Well, what's unique about Moses, and we don't have too much time to study him today, is there was a unique special relationship that existed between God and Moses. In fact, elsewhere in the scriptures, when describing the relationship between Moses and God, God says, with Moses I speak face to face in Numbers chapter 11, or literally it's in the Hebrew mouth to mouth. There was a, a unique a special intimacy, a special relationship that existed. Abraham would be the father of faith, but no one had come like Moses both before and after him. And at the end of his life, in the second telling of the law, Deuteronomy, he says, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This would have been a big deal to to have someone like Moses. Joshua comes, but that that isn't the promised prophet that is going to take over and rule the people. There would be a specific set of requirements that the people were looking for of this future coming prophet. For example, one of them would be that he would be of the clan of the household of Judah. We clicked ahead Let's go back one slide there. If somebody can make that go back one, that would be, that would be great to Genesis 49. The, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So, so Judah would be the, the clan from which the ruler would come. And the passage that we've looked at here this morning, that he would come from Bethlehem. The point that I'm trying to make here is, as the people were looking for their promised Messiah, their promised future prophet, there was going to be a specific set of criterion that they were looking for, and in our passage that we're studying today, one of them is that he would come from Bethlehem. 
Now, I tried to put up on here a map of where Bethlehem is in relation to Judah and just even Gaza where we see the fighting happening today. But, but after putting it up there, I realized, man, that map is way too small. You can't really tell a whole lot of where Bethlehem is located geogra- geographically by looking there. But it was on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's where, we're told in Genesis 35, that Rachel died. It's the setting, the context for the, bo- the book of Ruth, where, where a great famine seizes the land, ironically, in the house of bread, there is no bread. But the point was that, that there would be this coming Messiah from this little town of Bethlehem on the outskirts of the great city of Jerusalem. It's not where people would have expected a great king to come from from the small town of Bethlehem where pasture, where sheep were being pastured. It's actually just part of, I think, the the way in which God does so much of his will that we see in the scripture. He he uses the the great things to to be shamed by the the, the less great things. He's using the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Right, so for example, David is from the town of Bethlehem. And then David is the, the youngest of all of his brothers. He's using that to to shame the wise. Or we're told, for example, of Christ in the book of Isaiah that that he would have no stately form because so often when people were picking their rulers, they wanted a good-looking ruler. Clearly, that's not what you guys wanted when you wanted a pastor. (laughs) But when they chose Saul, for instance, we're told that Saul was particularly handsome. He he was good-looking to follow. God is often using the, the small things, the foolish things of the world to, to shame the wise. And, and that was part of what was happening in calling forth this Messiah from Bethlehem. Commentator Leslie Allen would put it this way. Who would have dreamed that so an unimportant a place would breed a David? Uh, of all the clans of the tribe of Judah, the Ephratite clan around Bethlehem, could hardly supply, and we know this from the biblical record, a a respectable army unit at times of tribal levy when they were raising the soldiers. How strange that God summoned the man of his choice from such an insignificant a source. He can take acorns and turn them into mighty oaks. So this morning we're continuing our series on unwrapping the Christmas gift. And we're going to examine what the Scriptures talk to us about the the promised shepherd king. And as we're reading from both our text in Matthew and then later in Micah, we're going to see four ways that Jesus cares for his people as their promised shepherd. Will you follow along with me as I read from the book of Matthew, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, not the prophet Isaiah, but a different prophet, the prophet Micah, and you, Bethlehem, 
in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, and lock on to this for our purposes here this morning, a ruler who will shepherd my people. The text that we're looking at here from Micah chapter 5, and I'm going to put it on the screens here in a moment, it does give us the immediate context, the prediction of where would Christ, this coming king, this shepherd king, where would he be born? But it's about even more than that. We could, in our text, look at the Magi and, and how they were coming from the east and understanding how the, the, the mixing of their religion was bringing them here. We, we could look at Herod, and we'll look at Herod later. But, but the real focus of today's message is what is the implication, not just of the immediate fulfillment of where he was born, but of what did it mean that he would be their shepherd king? So I'll turn our attention now to Micah chapter 5 and looking at the entire prophecy here in full just to make sure that we understand what was being said. Uh, Micah 5 verses 2 through 5, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, that's the clan, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he, that is this great shepherd, he shall be their peace. So we're considering this morning the promised shepherd king, and and we're looking for what are the ways in which Jesus cares for his people as their shepherd. Just a bit of history context before we dive in there in case you're wondering. Okay, we read this prophecy from Micah. Where does Micah take place? Micah takes place, if you remember this from last week, he is a contemporary of Isaiah. So he's writing during the same time, predicting, calling forth the same promised Christ, and eventually Israel, shortly after the writing of Micah, would be carted off, and later Judah. We're looking for the ways in which our promised shepherd king cares for us this Christmas season, and the first is this, that he is our protector. Be it in the Old Testament or today, one of the the chief jobs of anyone who is a shepherd is to protect the sheep because sheep are dumb. They need protection. They, They need someone to provide protection from the world and even from protection from them. This popular YouTube video was making its rounds a couple of years ago, and I think it highlights very clearly why do sheep need a protector? We see that sheep often get themselves into challenging situations when they're stuck, and life is hard, no doubt, but they they are protected, they are brought out, and right back in to the problem. It's a bit comic relief, dear brothers and sisters. But you and I, we need protecting because 
sheep are dumb. And he, this is our great shepherd, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, you may not like being called a a sheep. The only thing I would say is take it up with the author. But let us rejoice here this morning as we consider the advent of Jesus the Christ and all that it means for our lives, that, that he is our great shepherd, is that we have a great protector. Of course, if you're thinking through this, you might be thinking, well, that brings up kind of a problem, Pastor Josh. As I look at my life, as I look at the world around us, I see so much suffering. I see so much injustice everywhere. How can it be that if Christ is my great protector, how can the problem of evil still exist? We don't have time to look at every passage in the book of Micah, but that actually was one of the the great problems of the day. As Israel was wandering away from the Lord, the problem of evil and injustice was everywhere, and God, in the midst of being their shepherd, just like he does today, he promised he would take care of that problem. For example, look in Micah chapter 2 for a moment. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil from their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and they seize them and houses and take them away. They, They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Evil was everywhere back in the day. And yet God promises, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising, that's the Lord saying, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. I realize this holiday season, for many of us, as we look at our lives and the lives of those around us, we can see the problem of pain. We can sit there and nurse old wounds and grudges. We can recount all of the ways in which we have been hurt by others, by ourselves, by God, whomever. But I want to say to you here this Christmas season that Christ is your good shepherd. And he is there to be your protector. Do not mistake that because he is not acting immediately and he's not acting in the ways in which you want him to, that there is a lack of love or care for you. To put it another way, the wheels of God's justice might move slowly, but they grind oh so finely. This Christmas season, remember that Christ is our great protector, the protector of his sheep, And as you have been wronged and you have been hurt, as you're in situations where you feel that you must defend and protect yourself, cling to promises like this in Romans chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, God claims that vengeance is mine. If it's his, I would not try taking it from him. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
can we agree that that is a great promise? As we've all been wronged and we have done the wronging, God promises, I am going to take care of it. I am going to take care of you. Christ comes to shepherd his people, and in shepherding them, that means that he's there to protect The safest place then for all of us as Christ tries to fulfill his role as protector is is to stay at the the center of God's will. Uh, The safest place for any of us as we're trying to navigate life and where to go and what to do is to to stay at the center of his will. and, And we find out and we learn God's will in God's word. We can rejoice this Christmas that we do not have to be our own protectors. We we have a great shepherd protector, and the safest place for us is at the center of his will, in his word and with his people. David is one of the most frequently mentioned shepherds of God's people. We'll actually look at one of those passages again here in a moment. And going to fight the giant Goliath, David presents some of his criteria of, of why he can fight this, this enemy of Israel. And he says, I have slain both the lion and the bear. Now, I don't know about you, some of you guys are hunters, but none of us probably can boast that we have slain both lion and bear without our firearms. He must have been somewhat fearsome. But the point is, why he probably had to do that is because those sheep had left the safety of the pack. When the pack sticks together, when the sheep are near one another and near their shepherd, often predators will stay away. They're not inclined to attack the group. They're inclined to attack the one who wanders away. So as we think about Christ being our great protector, the safest place for us is in God's word at the center of his will and with his people. Perhaps what you need to do is commit to being more faithful, to being with God's people, with the pack, so that Christ can be your great protector. But if he's our great protector, then he's also our leader. We don't see it actually borne out in this particular passage, but we see elsewhere from Scripture the concept of the shepherd being the leader. For example, when David is installed as king over Israel, we we see this describing both shepherd and leading. So then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. There's an intimacy there. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was You who led us out. It was you who brought in Israel. And the Lord has said to you, you shall shepherd, you shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. To be a shepherd in the scripture means that you're leading the sheep. Moses would even say this as he was nearing the end of his life and saying that he was crying out to the Lord Let the Lord, the God of all the spirits of flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. Why? That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. A part of Christ being our shepherd this Christmas season is that he is our 
leader. Shepherds are called to lead. In fact, that's one of the reasons that the title is given to me of, of pastor. It's actually the, the Latin word you may not know of, anybody want to guess? Shepherd. You can even hear the English word pasture there from the word pastor, shepherd. The point is that God has installed in his churches under shepherds as Christ leads. He has installed under shepherds leaders to guide the congregation so that they may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Christ currently leads his people. He he led them in his earthly ministry on earth, and, and he leads them now in his current reign in heaven. And the way that we follow the leadership of Christ is we do his will. He'd put it this way in the upper room discourse. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. There is a calling to follow and keep the commandments of Christ. And he who loves me, he will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the idea that God is somehow aloof, that Christ is not interested in our lives, in what we do, where we go, what we say, that idea is completely and utterly wrong. Christ being our shepherd here this Christmas season means that he is our leader. And for those who've trusted in Christ, For the death, burial, and resurrection to save us from our sins, that means that he is our leader. Paul would record it this way in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means he's in charge. He calls the shots. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Scholars call this lordship salvation, meaning that that what is required in order to be saved is that Jesus is now in charge of your life. You can't just say a prayer, some magical words, so to speak, and then believe that you can go about living your life the way that the world lives. There must be repentance. There must be making Christ the Lord of your life. You and I, we were all headed in one direction, and we have turned to follow the great shepherd of our souls. What marks a true believer versus a false one is that Christ is the the Lord of their lives and there is evidence all around that people can see that Jesus is their shepherd, Jesus is their Lord, Jesus is their leader. And so here is this Christmas season... As we consider what does it mean that Christ is our great shepherd, dear brothers and sisters, I would ask you, are there areas in your life where where it's really clear that, that Jesus is not the leader? Jesus is not calling the shots in your life. Christ came to be our great shepherd. And in being our great shepherd, he is calling us to follow him as he provides leadership in our lives and in the life of this church. Thirdly, then, Christ says that he is our provider. One of the things that a shepherd does is a shepherd provides 
for his sheep. There's so many passages that we could look at in the scriptures that hit this point, but you probably know this one really well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Or later, in predicting the future coming king, we see in Ezekiel 34, I will set up over them one shepherd. This is long after David is dead, looking forward to the future Christ, my servant David, and he shall feed them. Part of being a shepherd is that Christ is our provider. He will feed us. Later, Paul would say it this way in Philippians 4. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of glory in Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, dear congregation of Berean, this is so important for us to see that as Christ came to be our great shepherd, he has come to provide for us. He loves us. He cares for us. And he wants to feed us, provide for us all that we need. <clears throat> but there is a false gospel that circulates in our society, in our world. You've probably heard of it before. It's the, it's the prosperity gospel. That if you can name it and claim it, if you can believe it with your heart, then God will give it to you. Dear brothers and sisters, that is a false gospel. Christ does promise to be our great provider. He did not promise to give you a great big house. He did not promise you a great, great health. He didn't promise you riches. That is not what he meant when he said he will be your provider. What he means is he will provide you with everything that you need to live a life that is pleasing to him, that glorifies him. Not that it's we're so great and we get exalted. Our lives are about making him look good. And he says he will provide us with everything that we need to glorify his name. I think one of the logical questions that we can ask then is, well, why does, why does he do this? Why does he choose to become our provider in these moments? Again, kind of looking to the Old Testament, looking to Moses, he actually helps answer that question for us. It's not because you were more in more number than any of the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you or chose you, for you were the fewest of people. Why did God choose to love you? Why did he choose to love me? Because the Lord loves you, that's why. And he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Here at Christ's advent, beloved, Christ chose to love us. He chooses to provide for us, not because we ourselves are so great. He does it because his love for us is so great. So as he provides for us all that we need here this holiday season, he's providing for us in so many ways. Our homes, our church, this facility here. He's providing us with things like cars, our health. He provides us with all of these things and so much more, not because we are so great, but because his love for us is so great. 
And if that is true, Paul reminds us in places like 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you didn't receive? You received everything from him, and if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Christ is our great provider at this holiday season. And and if that is true, brothers and sisters, let us put on humility. God wants us to be a wise steward for sure, but let us remember, he provides us with all that we need, and therefore, beloved, we need to follow his word in stewarding all that he has provided to us. Lastly, then, the text shows us that he is our Savior He comes to be our great shepherd because he is our savior. Christmas is not ultimately about a baby born in a manger. It's about a lamb on a tree. The book of Revelation would record it this way. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will, he will guide them. He will guide all of us to streams of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Christ comes to be our shepherd ultimately so that he can save his people. To save them, to save us from our sin. Each and every one of us was born with the spiritual condition of sin. We were destined for hell and we needed a great savior to save us. Christ comes to save us from our sins. He he dies in our place, and he is raised from the dead and offers new life to anyone who will repent and believe and make Christ the Lord of their lives. In his earthly ministry, Christ predicts and puts it this way. He says this, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do for his sheep? He lays down his life for the sheep. He's the hired hand and not a shepherd. And just notice here, he does not own the sheep. Christ is a bit possessive of you if you are saved. He owns you. But what is the one who is hired? When he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He, that is the hired man, he flees because he's a hired man and cares nothing for the sheep. But Christ says, I am the good shepherd. I know mine own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life. He lays down his life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice So there will be one flock, there will be one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you see he came to be our great shepherd king, ultimately that he would be our Savior. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I know myself, all their pastors on staff, so many people here at Berean, we would love to talk with you about how you can know Christ as your great shepherd king who is your Savior. 
And if you know Christ as your Savior, as you see the gospel message here at Christmas time, rejoice that Christmas is about your great shepherd king who comes to be your great Savior. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you today and we offer you great thanks. As we see and celebrate the advent of your Son, the great shepherd king who who you send to, to protect us, to provide for us. Father, we also see that you send him to be our great Savior. And so I pray, Father, that as we celebrate the advent of your Son, his coming to earth, that we would rejoice and see our need of the Savior who came to die in our place. And if we have trusted in him as our Lord and Savior, that it would be very clear by the way that we live our lives that he is in charge of our lives, and that we would trust him for his provision and his protection. Father, we ask all of this in your son's most precious and holy name. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.